Uh, happy Easter. Um, you know, Easter is a, it's an interesting, interesting thing because I don't know how many of you know this, but the, the term Easter, we use it freely. Um, every year we celebrate Easter, but the term Easter actually has like a, a pagan uh, origin. Do you know that? It, it, we, it, as Christians, I mean, if you know where the, the word Easter comes from, you say, why, why do we even use that term? Um, what we're celebrating today is what? The resurrection of Jesus. Um, the term Easter um, was something that uh, what Christianity often does and, and, and has done it throughout history, throughout uh, the history of the church, will we'll take a word or a season or an event or something um, and we will confiscate it. And then we will sanctify it. And what sanctify it means that it's that big, you know, Christian theological word means that we clean it up. And then we repurpose it and then we use it for our own uh, purpose. Okay, so uh, Easter is the resurrection of Christ. And what we're doing every year on this Sunday is we are celebrating the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And so what happens though is that. Because the, the world in general doesn't necessarily know what the word Easter means. See, I think we kind of, the church historically kind of messed up on this. We should never have, have taken that word and used it because there are people that all week long have been um, talking about celebrating Easter. And, and what do they tend to do? What do they do? What did, what did you do with your kids yesterday? You went out and you hid these little orbs filled with candy, right? Little Easter eggs. And you put them all over the grass and all over different places and hiding them. And kids went out and found them. And, and, uh, and we think that that is celebrating Easter. Like we, we do an Easter egg hunt. Now, I, I'm not against Easter egg hunts. We go out and we have a great time on Good Friday. We did this with the, our church out Central Park. We had a fantastic um, celebration with our kids and gave them lots of candy, like bags of candy. Like it was amazing how much candy they got. And But we tell them about Jesus while we're doing this. But, but the world could do that and not ever have a clue what Easter is actually about. Um, they could go hide candy, find candy, eat candy, and say, wow, Easter must be about candy and about eggs and about bunny rabbits and about all that. And we know that Easter is about the resurrection of Jesus. And so what happens is that uh, on this day, Jesus rose from the dead, and what happened on that day was that the disciples were together. He met with them for the first time after his resurrection, and something clicked in their heads like, this is an important day, right? There's something really important about this day. And so the next Sunday, they met together, and the next Sunday, they met together, and the next Sunday, and every Sunday after that, uh, if you call yourself a Christian you tend to meet on Sunday because Sunday is the Lord's day. It's not the Sabbath. Sometimes we get this a little bit confused. The Jewish people celebrated the Sabbath on what day? Saturday. That's the seventh day. It's the day God rested. But on Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead, and he claimed that as his day. It's the Lord's day. And so we celebrate not only on Easter Sunday, like it's, yeah, annual reminder, but every Sunday... When the church gathers together for worship and we listen to the word and we sing songs and we pray together and we gather for fellowship on, this, on Sunday, we are proclaiming to the world that we have a risen Lord 
Every Sunday, we're confessing, we're proclaiming, we're letting the world know that Jesus is alive. He is meeting with his church. We are celebrating the fact that his victory over sin and death is also our victory over sin and death. Every Sunday, this is what we're doing. We're not just here to do a religious thing. We're not here just to to do our own thing. We're here to celebrate Jesus every single Sunday that he is alive. Amen? So... What we're going to look at as we um, spend a little time here, we, we have this, we, this tendency. We talk about Jesus conquered sin at the cross. You've ever heard this before? And he conquered death at his resurrection. But those two things can't really be separated. Okay? It's not as if you could conquer one and not the other. Okay? With Jesus rising from the dead, he conquered sin and death. And those victories are not just for him. They're victories for you and me. And we need to know why that is and how that is. So let's stand as we read God's word. Uh, This is Luke chapter 24. um, And Jesus appearing to his disciples and starting in verse 36. You can read along with me on the screen. You can grab a pew Bible. You can use your own Bible. Um, You can just listen along. It says this. As they were talking about these things, we'll talk about these things in a minute. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that it's I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance For the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son who conquered sin and death for us. Lord, we we thank you. Um, Jesus is more than a historical figure. He's more than a good teacher. He's more than a prophet. He is a living Lord, living God, and he is alive now and forever. And we thank you that 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 act, Lord, to walk out of that grave by his own authority, by his own power, um, it validated something, but it also um, did something for us it showed that he was complete in authority to, to be able to conquer sin and death, but also that he was in authority to transfer and to offer and to promise that same victory to us. And Lord, as we worship today, as we honor, as we glorify, as we hear, listen, and, and spend time with you in your presence, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take the truth of that act, take the truth of that promise, Um, And would you sink it deep into each and every heart, each and every mind, each and every soul, 
that we know, that we have confidence, that we have peace uh, about our own life, our own eternal life, that we are made new, different, renewed, changed, um, transformed, that something has happened. By faith, Lord, we have gained something that we could not have earned. A gift has been offered, and by faith we receive it. Victory over sin and death, Lord, forever. And it changes us. It changes the way we think about life. It changes our confidence level. It changes our perspective of, of other human beings. It changes our, our purpose in this world. It changes our hope for eternity. It changes so many things, Lord. We, we thank you for that. We want to be people who are changed. And so help us to continue in that transformation, that change, Lord, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it says, uh, as they were talking about these things and trying to step that back, what, what kinds of things were they talking about? Last week, um, it was the triumphal entry. It was Palm Sunday. And so within a week, okay, this is literally what's happening. Sunday, uh, Palm Sunday is the, uh, the, the celebration, the public declaration that Jesus made that he is the king, right? We, we heard that, learned that last Sunday. He is declaring that he is the king. His disciples uh, have put him on a colt. They have spread their cloaks and, and the palm branches down, and everybody is shouting and singing, Hosanna, even to the extent that... Uh, uh, Jesus says, if they don't do that, all of creation, the rocks themselves would have to uh, shout my praises because uh, someone would have to acknowledge the lordship, the kingship, the right uh, of Jesus to rule the, the earth. That the, the Pharisees the, and the religious leaders were saying, you should rebuke your disciples because they're actually saying that you're the Messiah, you're the king. And he says, they have to do that. Somebody has to do it because if they don't, creation will burst with its expectation of what I'm going to bring, right? So they have this celebration, and it seems like, okay, something's happening, and something's going to transpire that's going to change the world. Um, and then we have Jesus turning over the temple tables on Monday and, and cleansing the temple, and it probably to the disciples seemed like another evidence that something's going to change. Jesus is going to retake Israel for Israel. He's going to become king, he's going to rule, and he's going to bring his people into this, this place of prominence in the world, and these things are beginning to happen and shake up, okay? Tuesday, um, he, he tells his disciples about uh, the end of times and his return, and I think they're still a little bit like confused, maybe. He says the temple's going to be destroyed, and I'm going to return, and they, all these things are going to happen, and, and they begin to scratch their heads a little bit because it doesn't sound exactly like what they're expecting, um, and then on Thursday, he gathers his disciples together, and they have what we call the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. Uh, it was their Passover, and uh, he begins to wash their feet, and he begins to give them a command to love each other. And uh, they're further, they're kind of still a little bit confused because he's telling them clearly, he says, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to be in the grave, and I'm going to rise on the third day. And he tells them this plainly. He doesn't you know, mince words. He doesn't use any kind of, you know, figurative language. But they're still kind of thinking, probably, well, Jesus, uh, maybe he means this 
metaphorically or figuratively or something. Maybe it's, it refers to something else. It's not literal. It's not actual um, and, and because they can't wrap their minds around the idea that this king, they know that he's the Messiah. They know that he's fulfilled everything of the Old Testament, that he really is the one that they were expecting. How could it be that he would die? That doesn't make sense to them. And, and they've seen him walk on water. I mean, you imagine just watching somebody just walk across a lake and just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Like how he's got control over heaven and earth. He tells the storm to be quiet and immediately it just, it silences it. He, he tells the dead person, been in the grave for four days, uh, Lazarus, why don't you just come on out of there? And Lazarus just wobbles out of the grave with his grave clothes still on. I mean, he's, he has begun to putrefy. You understand? Like he, he called him out of the grave when there's no rational reason. It's not as if he was just, you know, had his heart started again. His body had to be restored. And he just has the authority to do that. He, he countless numbers of blind people, deaf people, lepers, healed by his word. Even from a distance, he would, somebody was dead or somebody was sick, and he would just say, yeah, that person's going to be healed. They're healed. And from wherever he was, he could just call it out, and it was true, and it would happen. And there's all kinds of evidence to confirm that these things were by his power, not by some coincidence. It was what he was doing. And demons, he would just say, come out of them. And what would happen sometimes was that the demons would say, are you going to torture us before the appointed time? And they would shriek and they would say, you're the Holy One of Israel. And Jesus would say, shut up. I don't want people to know all the details just yet. And I especially don't need the testimony of demons. And they would just obey him and they'd have to. They, by his authority, they could not disobey him. And the disciples are just watching this for years, just seeing this happen unfold one after the next after the next. He's preaching good news to the poor. He's feeding thousands with crumbs and, and all these things. And, you, and how could it be that he would die? And yet, Thursday night, he gets arrested. And even that experience, I mean, just think about what's going on. The, the night that he was betrayed and arrested, um, the, the soldiers come to arrest him and, and uh they come to say, we're here to arrest Jesus of Nazareth. And, and he says, that's me. And they fall to the ground. Like it, just a shock wave of power of Jesus just saying that, yeah, that's me. And he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And it's like they kind of, kind of pick themselves back up. And all right. Uh, and he says, that's me. What you're here to do, go ahead and do, but leave these alone. Like, he's still in complete authority and power. Even over his own arrest, he allows it to happen. Peter cuts off the ear of Malchus, one of the uh, servants of the high priest, and Jesus just picks it up and super glues it back on there. <laughs> right? I mean, they're just watching. Like, how could this happen? And then very quickly, he goes, he's arrested, he's beaten in the... The flogging of Jesus is just like something you can't even imagine. I mean, we, we, you've seen the Passion of the Christ, okay? If you've ever seen that, you get the kind of a picture of it that's pretty graphically true to life. People died often from the floggings that the Romans um, would give to people like that. It was horrific. And they, they were at a distance 
seeing their Lord, the one who had all the power to do all these things, who had confirmed over and over that he was the Christ and he was the Son of God and he was the King and, and all these things. He's the Savior. And they saw him being treated like this and, and they're just, they can't grasp it. How, how could that be? I mean, he says himself, he's got the authority to call down 10,000 angels and they will protect him. And yet he's just letting this happen. And then he goes to the cross. And the cross is a further, not only pain, but it's also a humiliation. Like they strip these victims naked and they throw them up for public display in a, in a show of torture to warn people, don't oppose the Roman government. And giving the public the opportunity to spit and to mock and to ridicule the people that are lifted up like that. And they're from a distance, they're watching all this happen, and then they see that he dies. They see it. They see the breath leave his body. They see that he has become a corpse. They know what it looks like. They're very familiar with when a person dies, what that looks like. And they, they've seen the whole process, and they've watched it, and now he's dead, and they're just like... And you can understand how they're confused, and they're kind of talking to each other about... I, I thought he was the Messiah. I thought he was the king. I thought he was the one that we were expecting. I thought he was going to restore Israel. I thought he was going to lift up the Jewish people and he was going to change all this and drive out the Romans and defeat all of our enemies. And this is, this is what's going on in their heads, defeating our enemies, defeating our enemies. He's going to defeat those that oppose us. He's going to defeat those who are, uh, who are oppressing us, who are controlling us. He's going to defeat those who have, have power over us, making us slaves. Now, you understand that he actually did all those things, but it wasn't the way that they thought, right? So the third day, okay, the Sabbath has come and gone. So Friday he is put in the tomb because uh, Friday night is when the Sabbath starts. They put him in the tomb. They can't do anything with his body Saturday because that's the day of rest and they can't work. They have to wait until finally um, Sunday where the Sabbath is over, they can begin to actually do something with his, his body. And the women go to the tomb early, first thing in the morning. The disciples, understand this, the disciples are uh, still afraid that uh, they are next, right? Because they saw what they did to Jesus. Jesus had all the power and the authority in, the, in heaven and earth, and they did that to Jesus. The, the religious leaders and the government and Judas have all conspired together to do this, and so they're still terrified that they're watching. They're watching the tomb, and they're watching for the disciples. And there's a conspiracy mindset that the disciples are going to come, and they're going to steal Jesus' body. So they seal the tomb, and they place guards there. And they have the, the legal authority to place guards to wait and see if the disciples ever come to try to get Jesus' body. Even the religious leaders knew that Jesus had uh, prophesied that he would die and be raised again. And so the disciples don't go near the tomb because they believe that they're going to get caught. But the, the women have the courage to go and do what's right for Jesus. Um, and so they go to the tomb early, early, early Sunday morning, and what do they find? An angel has already scared the guards off, okay? They, they were terrified at the sight of, of an angel. They left 
the women come, they find the, the tomb open and it's empty. And they also see an angel. And then Mary uh, Magdalene, she has an encounter with Jesus at some point. Um, and she doesn't recognize him. And so she says, uh, uh, if you're the gardener, she thought he was the gardener. Uh, if you've taken his body and laid him somewhere, just tell me, I'll go get him. Like, I don't know how she's going to carry Jesus' body, but she's, she's willing to try. And he finally says, Mary, and she, her eyes open. She realizes it's Jesus. And then Peter, at some point in the day, uh, probably in the afternoon, Peter and, and, and John had run to the tomb. They'd been told the, the tomb is en- empty. They run to the tomb. They find it empty. They were scratching their heads. It says John believed. It's an interesting thing that John believed because he didn't really understand. And I think there's a point there, too, that maybe you and, you and I need to think about for just a second. Sometimes you don't have every piece uh, of, of what you want, of the puzzle. Sometimes you don't understand all the things that God's doing in your life. Sometimes you don't understand what it all means. And there's a point where you just say, I know. I know something beyond what I, what I have questions about. I know something beyond something uh, that, that makes total sense to me, and I'm going to step into that by faith. And somebody maybe needs to step into their faith even with some questions. But John, he, he doesn't understand everything, but he believes. But later on in the day, Peter, he has an encounter with Jesus. All we have is a uh, reference to it. It just says that, that Jesus appeared to Peter. That's all it says. We don't know what happened. We don't know the conversation. We don't have any account of, of what that uh, transaction looked like at all. Um, what was likely was that Peter had denied Jesus three times, you remember? Before the, the rooster crowed, Peter had actually called down curses on himself. He had, he had said, may God damn me if I know him. That's, that's what he was saying. That's calling curses down on yourself. And so you, you think about that for a second. You have made an oath to God about not knowing your Lord. He needs a personal encounter with Christ just to bring him from the point of absolute despair to say, Peter, you're still my disciple. And at the end of the Gospel of John, Peter will be restored completely into apostolic ministry by Jesus. But in this encounter, it's just an encouragement. Peter, you're not lost. He has that. And then you have a couple of guys, a couple of disciples who are trying to figure out all this stuff, and they're so overwhelmed you know, by everything, they, they can't figure it out. They begin to leave. They go to Emmaus, and they're walking along, and they're bewildered, and they're sad, and they're upset. I mean, they've, they've been through trauma. They've seen their Lord brutally killed. And then all this other stuff happening that day, and they hear reports, but they don't know anything. And Jesus appears to them on the road, and he begins to share with them. He, he basically says, um, guys, you idiots. <laughs> I mean, that's my paraphrase, but <laughs> didn't, don't you understand, according to Scripture, that the, the Messiah had to die like that? Don't you understand that? And he explains to them about all through Scripture how the Messiah would suffer and die. And, but they don't know it's him. They don't recognize him. They, they, um, they are 
set on fire, it says, when he's explaining the scripture, but they don't realize it's their Lord. They get to Emmaus, and um, Jesus breaks bread with them, and their eyes are open, and then, boom, he just disappears. And they hightail it back to Jerusalem, seven miles, and then Jesus appears to the disciples, all but Thomas, who's still hiding. I mean, they were scattered. They are just trying to stay alive. And he appears to them, and they begin to see, okay, <laughs> this is real. And it's still unaware, like, what this really means, right? But here's what it, it begins to tell us about Jesus and his resurrection. See, other people had been raised from the dead. Other people, Jesus had raised Lazarus after he'd been in the grave for, for four days. He'd raised a, a little girl. He'd raised a, a young man. Uh, there's several others in the, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are others that we may not, not even know about. There, people are being raised from the dead, but it's from a mortal, natural state of a premature death into still a mortal, natural state that will die eventually. They're still going to die all those other resurrections. But Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he did it himself. That alone is just mind-boggling, that he has the authority to lay his life down. He didn't have to. He had the authority to say, you can take my life, but I have the authority to pick it back up again when I'm ready. And he walks out of the grave by his own power and authority. And his resurrection is different. You, you see Jesus appearing and disappearing, and he doesn't look the same, and, you know, all these different things are happening. But here's what Scripture tells us about it. It says in Colossians um, 1, 18, he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And then Revelation uh, also confirms this as well. Revelation 1, 5 says, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so what happens is that Jesus is, um, his resurrection is eternal. He doesn't go from a mortal life to another mortal life. He goes from a mortal life to an immortal God, power. He's raised forever. He has life within himself. He's the firstborn from the dead, meaning not only that he's the first one to do this like this, but he is the first fruits, meaning that he's the first of what? Many. First of many. And he invites you and me to participate in that victory. I don't know if you got goosebumps, but you should. He's raised immortal and victorious over sin and victorious over death and victorious over the devil. And he says... That victory is yours. I give it to you. I've earned it, and then I graciously offer it to any who would have faith. Say, this is beyond conception. He begins to um, tell them after this. He says that um, these are my words. I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, prophets, Psalms, just means the whole Bible. Okay, everything in the Old Testament, everything that was written about me must be fulfilled. So what we understand is that those things uh, begin with the fact that the Messiah would be human, okay? In Genesis, it says that the child of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So it's going to be a human being. 
Uh, it's going to be somebody who's born of a woman. Um, this person is going to be also of the tribe of Judah. This person is also going to be of the line of David. This person also is going to have miraculous powers. He's going to raise the dead and have the ability to heal and to preach the gospel and to proclaim um, liberty and freedom to captives. He fulfills all those different things, but the thing that they did not quite understand was this next thing about defeating the enemies. You have to picture this, okay? The Jewish people, um, the Jewish people perceived everyone who is not Jewish as their enemy. Okay, And, and not totally their fault. I mean, they were oppressed by the world. They were hated. They were misunderstood. They were rejected. They were persecuted and prosecuted. I mean, it just, it, they were, it was kind of like us against the world. And so their terminology was very clearly us against the world. It was Jewish and Gentile. Gentile means anybody who's not Jewish. And so if you're Jewish, you're my brother. If you're not Jewish, you're my enemy. And so their understanding of the Messiah defeating their enemies was he's going to come and he's going to lift up Israel and we are going to rule the earth and we're going to defeat all the enemies. And so the king Okay, the, the prophesied king, the rightful ruler, um, is going to have to rule through conquering the enemies around us, just like you would understand most kings to conquer their enemies, right? It's pretty typical um, behavior. Kings conquer their enemies. They understood that their king would also conquer their enemies. And here's what happens, is that they had misunderstood the issue of who the enemy was. So here's what Hebrews says. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. So the Messiah must be human, fully God, fully man, okay? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So here's one thing that you begin to understand is that God does not define human beings as the enemy. As Christians, sometimes we might actually feel like the Jewish people, like it's us against the world. It's, it's us against other people, other humans, and people who aren't um, believing like we do, living like we do, trusting like we do, uh, have faith like we do, follow God's word like we do. Like if they're not doing all those things or or something like that, if they're not Baptists like we are, which, I mean, even in our Baptist church, we're not all Baptists. <laughs> and God says, I made them in my image. I made them pure and perfect. That's how he created us. He made us to have life forever. He made us to be eternal beings. He says, you're not enemies. Human beings are not the enemy. Human beings are captives, and captive to a particular enemy, which is sin, death, and the devil. And God is going to send a Savior to release all who would trust in his Savior. He would release them into freedom, into a relationship with him, no longer bound by sin, no longer bound by death, no longer deceived and bound by Satan. So... 
It says also in 1 John, uh, verse, or chapter 4, verse 4, 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So here's what I want to tell you is that Satan had and still does have to a degree this power of, of fear over death. Um, that power has been crushed by Jesus when he died and rose again. But it's still somehow in operation through deception. What happened was in Genesis, Satan deceived and tempted Adam and Eve to sin. When, and, and in that moment, when sin entered the world, death entered the world, and the fear of death entered the world, and Satan had power over that. Because what Satan would do as the accuser is he would accuse you to your face. You have sinned. You are wrong. You're not pure. You're not perfect. You've done wrong to God. You've broken his laws. You're accountable to God. And that, that's true. But he would use that as a weapon to keep you in bondage. And then he'll accuse you to God. Those people are wicked. Those people sin against you. Those people don't follow you. They don't obey your laws. They don't obey your morals. They don't obey your rules. They don't obey your, your character. They're wrong. They're broken. They're sinful creatures. And that would all be true. And what Jesus did when he died and when he rose again was that he had actually broken the, the power of Satan in his accusation because as a believer, what, all I have to do, I don't have to fulfill the law because Jesus fulfilled it for me. All I have to do is to appeal to Jesus. By faith, I say, Jesus did that for me. He died on the cross for me and he rose from the dead for me. Therefore, the power of Satan's accusation is diminished and gone. Amen. So Jesus, I appeal to him. So he can't, he can't accuse me anymore. And if you're still allowing him to accuse you, then, then he's only able to do that through deception, not through reality. Jesus, in his power, has broken that power. Now, the other part of it, though, is that Satan may still accuse you to God. Well, look at Luke. He's sinful. He keeps doing the wrong things. He doesn't believe you exactly the way that he should. He doesn't follow you the way that he should. He messes up. And that would be true. And God says, he appeals to Jesus. And his accusation has no power. That's, that's where Jesus defeats sin and death on your behalf. You get that? A couple problems we still got to deal with. Every human being, I believe, has a, at least a, a sense that they are a sinner. To err is what? To err is human. We know that. Everybody knows that. There are some people that don't fear death who are not Christians, right? You think about that for a minute. I mean, there are people that are committing suicide. There are people that are harming themselves, and they're trying to escape life, and they think that Somehow, if they die, they'll, 
be released from pain and misery and heartache and depression and fear and anxiety and all the rest of it. And what has happened is that Satan, as a deceiver, what did, I think it was C.S. Lewis said that Satan's greatest trick was to convince the world that he didn't exist. Or was it, I don't know. Who's the guy from the movie? He's quoting somebody. I, I just think that it's, it's just not quite right. What Satan's greatest trick was to convince the world that God didn't exist. Because people all know that they're sinful. People know that they're flawed. That, they're, that to be human is to be flawed. We know that. The only way to think that death is going to release you from pain is to not believe that you're going to be accountable to God when you die. And that deception, I think, has run its course through our nation, at least. So he begins to, he still has the power of fear over death. Doesn't mean he has to use it. He could remove it because he's in control for those who don't know Christ because they have no other option. They're still bound. They're still slaves to wrong thinking. For Christians, um, here's another issue. Do you still fear death? Some of you are like, no, I really don't. I'm ready. I'm ready right now. I hope Jesus comes back today. And some of you are like, I don't know if I'm there yet. Here's what 1 John says. He says that perfect love drives out fear, right? Fear has to do with punishment. Perfect love drives out fear. Those who fear have not been perfected in love. And this Here's what I'm saying. This is a quality, not a qualification. If you fear death as a Christian, it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. Sometimes you get a mixed message there, like, well, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't fear death, and you should just be you know, ready any moment. And we do want you to be ready at any moment to meet the Lord, because you could meet the Lord any moment, right? Yes. The fear of death has to do with this quality, okay? What it means is that the closer you get in your relationship with the Lord, the more you understand God's word and his Holy Spirit gives you understanding of scripture and dig deep into what the truth of his word means for your life and grow closer to your relationship with Christ through personal experience, through a constant worship and through these types of activities that you're, you're praying, you're reading God's word and you're just you're allowing Jesus to speak to you. You're seeking to have his will be your will in your life and all those things. As that grows, then God's presence and power in your life begins to expand and grow and it, it drives out fear of death because now you're more inclined with your relationship than you are with your per preconceived notions about what death is going to be or your preoccupation with how it's going to all work out. And so what happens is as you grow closer to God... It, we're talking about maturity, then your fear of death begins to diminish. And he just says, just begin to walk with the Lord. 
grow deeper in your relationship with the Lord. His Holy Spirit's going to come in, and you're going to be witnesses of these things. As you grow in your understanding of, of who I am and what my word says, then you're going to naturally, you're going to be proclaiming, confessing, celebrating um, to the world what that means. And you have more confidence to live a life that is worthy of the Lord and less fear of what the world might do to you because of it. And the church, I believe, has to begin to grow more in that. We, we experienced that this morning as we're worshiping and celebrating and thanking the Lord and honoring and lifting his name up. And you could just feel the, the chorus of the church just you reverberate in these walls, right? Like, ah, the presence of the Lord. That's an awesome thing. What else are you thinking about when he's present? nothing. You're not afraid of anything. And the church has to really begin to do that more and more and more. We're going to do it every week. Every time that we get together, we're celebrating the resurrection of our Lord, the presence of our Lord, the power of our Lord, the salvation of our Lord, the reality of, of his, his glory, of his honor, of his, his gift of salvation to us. And we just we resound with that. And then we take that into tomorrow, into the next day, into wherever we go. I'm not afraid of what the world might do to me because I have a bigger picture of, of Jesus in my life. The victory that he offered. He says, it's yours by faith. You want that? You need it. Every single person here is going to face death. Unless, as we say, Jesus returns before you die. But you're going to face judgment. Judgment. And so by faith, you say, that's mine. Even if I don't understand it completely, he offered it, I'm receiving it, it's mine. And I don't, it doesn't have to do with me being good enough, me being strong enough, me being smart enough. It's all about what he did for me. I'm going to claim that. Amen? Because it's his victory over sin and death, and he offers it to you as a gift. Now, I want to do something I haven't done in years but if you would, close your eyes. And please, just honor that for those around you. Because um, I want you to have the opportunity to receive Christ for the first time. Or you know, maybe it's not the first time. Maybe it's just you've wandered so far you don't know where you're at. But to feel comfortable as you close your eyes... Um, I want to invite you, if you want to feel like you need to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, would you just put your hand up, just put it up a little ways. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus. Just stick it up there. You don't have to keep it up there forever. Just put it up. And praise you, God. Thank you, Jesus. This is... It's not about me knowing. It's not about anybody else around you knowing. It's just your business between you and God. You putting your hand up is not anything more than you acknowledging you need him. You want him. And you're willing to step out in faith to receive him. I'll give you another opportunity. Thank you, Jesus.
I'm going to pray for you. And, but it's your prayer that matters, not mine for you. It's your prayer in your heart between you and the Lord. But if you need some words, I hope that some of the words that I speak will help you in your own language with the Lord. But Father, we thank you. Thank you for the gift. Thank you for the grace. Thank you for the sacrifice, Lord. Sacrifice means substitution. You became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God that you've offered to us your victory. You, you made it available because we were not, we weren't the target. We weren't the enemy, Lord. We were simply slaves, deceived, ignorant, weak, but cherished, valued, and loved. And so you were willing to die for us, to make us friends, to make the possibility of becoming new creatures in Christ, brothers and sisters with Christ, heirs with Christ, children of God. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that for us. We admit that we have sinned. We, we all have. Your word clearly <laughs> tells us there's so many different ways, mistakes, ignorance, willfulness, disobedience, rebellion. We've, we've done it all. But you forgive it all. You proved that by dying on the cross for us. You told us how much you love us by giving that which was most precious in exchange for our life, for our soul, for our future. So we confess we've messed up, but we also thank you and receive salvation in the name of Jesus. And we praise you, God, that that is a promise you promised to us. It's a guarantee that you made possible. You will fulfill. And all we can do is receive it, thank you for it, and seek to live a life worthy of it. Lord, help us to do that. Send your Holy Spirit. Lord, I, I pray for each and every person who raised their hand this morning. Lord, may their heart be true in their receiving of Jesus today. And may they receive the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing their eternity. Open their minds to your word. Open their hearts to their walk. Change their life, Lord. Help them to not only know it in their mind, but feel it in their heart. Um, and help other people to know it who see them, who see the change in them. That they might ask, what's different? What changed? What happened? Easter Sunday, 2023, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And my life has never been the same. And we'll give you praise. Thank you, God, for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to just invite you. We're going to celebrate. Uh, the altar is always open. You want to come and pray, you're welcome. Um, but we're just going to celebrate, lift up our voices in, in honor of our risen Lord. Amen. Let's stand and sing.